Hey guys, it's Calvin again, taking over for a, a second week now. I just wanted to start off today by saying a huge congratulations to Daniel, who's had his wedding on the weekend. This is why I'm still continuing on on the podcast as Dan is off on, on his honeymoon. Today, we catch up with Michelle Young, who is the founder and CEO of both Pop-Up Cosmetics and the cosmetic department. Uh, Michelle wholesales and retails cosmetic products around the Sydney metropolitan. Today, we spoke about the discount retail model and how systems create a successful business. Michelle also shares how she overcame large adversities such as the GFC, COVID, and taking on one of the world's biggest cosmetic conglomerates. This was an exceptional conversation with somebody that I consider one of the most talented entrepreneurs I have ever met. Enjoy the show. All right, Michelle. How are you? I'm good, Calvin. Thank you. How are you? I'm very good. Very good. Great to great to see you as always. And um, no, I'm, I'm really excited for today. Obviously, I think you've, you've been around now for probably close on six months. And yeah, in the time that you've been around, um, there's no doubt that you're one of the most talented entrepreneurs that we, we have in the club. And we've got to know you very well, you know, over the, over the last six months because you're around a lot. So, <laughs> you know, we were really excited to, to get you on here. Um, and so why don't we start off with just a, a bit of a rundown on, on, on yourself, your business and, and what you're all about. Thank you, Calvin. They were very kind words and I, I love the Cub community. It's just been an amazing community to join. But about the business, so it was in 2006 that I travelled overseas and I noticed that they were selling makeup cheaper than what they do in Australia and I thought, well, hang on a minute, this mascara I'm buying in Australia is $50.00 but in the US it's 25. So I um, did some research. I was like, what's going on here? And I then from that started a wholesale business and started wholesaling to pharmacies around Australia. And then over the last five years, that's pivoted also into a retail business where we sell um, pop-up and discount pop-up sales across Sydney. Mm -hmm. And how many locations do you have? At the moment, six, but next week we go to seven. We're on quite a rapid growth journey. Um, we are trying to expand really quickly because we've done a lot of work pre-COVID, getting everything in place, systemizing everything. It's kind of run like a franchise, but we've stayed company owned. And are there particular types of centres that you like to be in or is it just where you find the best deal? Yeah, well, when we first started, we stick to the the big ones and the majors and we ideally like to get a centre court where you'd typically see like a big brand activation or a car because obviously in that centre court there's the most foot traffic and we sell discount cosmetics so we need a lot of foot traffic to make our sales and targets. But, yeah, so when we were only running four, we stick to the majors but now that we're starting to expand, we have to entertain shorter-term leases at some of the like more um, neighbourhood type shopping centres to get those growth plans underway. And do you find, I mean, we've kind of had this conversation offline. I come from a, a somewhat similar background mm -hmm. in toys, but we, we had that discount kind of model. And I know that we only went after certain kind of locations because it was areas where people, I guess, were more inclined to go after a discount. Is that something that you look at kind of demographically? Um, when, when choosing your locations? Yeah, well, it's really interesting because a lot of people do ask that because you would assume that, okay, if you go to lower, lower socioeconomic places, they're going to spend more. But what we find is because women love makeup and then they love discount makeup, it doesn't really matter where we go. The customers spend because our whole branding and marketing for one of our concepts is up to 85% off discount brand name cosmetics. So it doesn't matter where we go, people fill their baskets. But what I do notice in, in the higher um, demographic areas is the basket size is bigger. Mm. So instead of a $20, $25 average sale, that starts to get up to $30, $45. So they've just got more to spend. But women across the board, all around Sydney Metro, which is where we go, Love discount cosmetics. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, why wouldn't you? Um, talk to me a little bit about your your business model because, as I said, I mean, I'm obviously fascinated by it. It's something that I've, I've known for a long time. I want to know a little bit more about how you feel about retail versus wholesale. Yeah. And explain to me how your model actually works. Yeah. So because I started out wholesaling, well, actually, I, I started out with a retail business online and then I noticed a pharmacy 
because of the prices, bought a whole lot of cosmetics from me. So I thought, well, hang on a minute. I'm going to do as much work for one retail sale. You've still got to pack it. You've still got to ship it. I would rather sell multiple of that products and do wholesale. So that's I did wholesale for 10 years. Um, and that was very competitive because there's other players selling directly to pharmacies. And if you get a group deal with one of those big players, you get it across the board. So it was very hard to compete with all the big players selling discount makeup. Um, and then I had a online deal go south where I was left with about oh, $50,000 worth of stock that I was going to be out of pocket with. And I, at that time, I had an office in Rosebury up on the third level and I thought, how am I going to pay this supplier? And I'd noticed the other businesses around the area doing like warehouse sales or four-day flash sales of um, samples or whatnot. And I thought, okay, I'll give that a, a go with cosmetics and drop, did a whole flyer drop around Rosebury and just had a four-hour sale. And when I got there at 10 o'clock, there was a line out the door. So they've actually come up to the third level in an office building. And I just thought, and I was selling out of boxes with just mm. printed off labels saying $3. I was just trying to get cost back. And I did not stop for those four hours of the sale. So I thought, okay, well, that's really interesting that people are willing to come up into an office building to get discount makeup. And I thought, well, I might try this concept on the ground. And um, I'm not sure if you know uh, McAvoy Street in Alexandria. Mm -hmm. There's a whole lot of outlet and warehouse places around there. So I approached a business and I said, hey, this is an undercover warehouse. Can I please rent that corner over in your car park just for just for four days? And again, I dropped the flyers, but I upped the amount of flyers. We dropped 10,000 flyers and did a lot of Facebook advertising and boosting um, and the sale was just incredible. Like we did not stop. I didn't even have any staff and I just did not move from the counter on a calculator processing sales. Like <laughs> I can't imagine how much stuff was flogged, but <laughs> it was, um, it was really good. And then I thought, okay, this is so great. This is far better than my wholesale business. I need to start think about turning this into a retail model. So we started running one sale a month and um, then again it was like the numbers stayed up. So I thought, okay, I can start to scale this and we started running more than one sale at once. So started to run the concurrent sale. We went from um, like one to four quite quickly and then the wheels start to fall off because you've got staff and you've got things going on and things got a bit crazy. So we decided to really um, systemise the business, video everything. If you open up the point of sale there's a video for it. Mm -hmm. Everything's driven on an app. Um, you know, I think we tested 11 different point of sale systems so that we could capture all the data that we needed. We were spending a lot of money on advertising. And so we needed to know how every customer heard about the sale so that we could, you know, know we were spending in the right areas. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, the model is very much driven by systems. So that if you go to any pop-up sale, you know, if, when we do start in Western Australia, it's, it's there, you can pick up the, you can pick up the app and know how to do everything. And that has been the only way I think that we've been able to, like we were running four in May when I started Cub and now we're going, we'll be in eight in December. And that's purely because of the level of systems that have been put in behind everything and obviously getting the right people around me. I mean, you see that in some of the most successful businesses on the planet. You know, you go to McDonald's mm -hmm. here, you go to McDonald's in, you know, the middle of India. It's the same, same thing with Apple and, and so on and so forth. Um, I guess without you giving away too much of your secrets, can you go a little bit deeper into how that discount model kind of oh, works? Yes, yeah. Because, you know, you obviously you see these, these businesses like Chemist Warehouse, mm. for example, where everything's always on sale, but they're obviously still making money and, and, and a lot of money at that. So can you go into a little bit on, on how the logistics behind that kind of works? Yeah. So I think because of our wholesale relationships that we had made, like by wholesaling for the last 10 years, I have a lot of people offer me stock. Well, at first I was seeking out suppliers saying, you know, can I buy this stock? Um, and with the brand names that I deal in, there is um, an element of importing that's called parallel importing. So that means purchasing a product from a higher recommended retail price point country and importing, sorry, a low, a low retail price point country and importing it into a country that has a high retail price point. And like New Zealand's the same, you pay more for everything, perfume, um, cosmetics, joggers, clothing, everything, because we're so far away from all the other countries. So I was sourcing stock from the UK and the US and then bringing that into Australia. And then with the wholesale buying power was able to 
pretty much for our pop-up sales, open up those wholesale prices to the public. So it's, I'm able to do it because of the volume buying that mm-hmm. I was doing. Um, and then over the last, I suppose, 15 years since I've been in the discount beauty market, being able to – people start offering me deals. So someone might um, change their packaging or overprint, overprint, um, overorder – there's a lot of different ways where stock will now start to be offered to me and I just look at it, look at the price. Are my customers going to like it? Is it still going to be in line with our discount model and then purchase that way? But um, when I first started, like I was told by probably over 10 intellectual property lawyers, you can't do what you can do. Mm-hmm. And at the time I had no money to afford um getting that deep advice and so I just called 10 different of them and, and tried to get a, as much general advice as I could and then I had finally had someone say, yes, you can do it. These are all the things you should do. These are all the things that you shouldn't do um, and, yeah, that's how it started. I mean that didn't stop the big guys wanting to stamp me out though. <laughs> yeah, and I know there's a story in that and I think that's something that we'll, we'll, we'll definitely get into um, but I'm curious to go a little bit deeper into obviously you're, you're, you're buying – stock from those suppliers, a big part of that is is obviously the relationships that you've got. I, I remember in my toy mate days, we would buy closeouts from, you know, the likes of, of Disney and, and Mattel and all that kind of stuff at a, at a much lower and discounted rate. And then obviously you're able to sell it for a certain price. That's a discount to the customer, but your margins are still um, significant. And I know that the one area in, in the business at, at that time that I wasn't involved in was the buying and, and the CEO of the company spent pretty much all of his time in that area. Talk to me a little bit about, I suppose, how you nurture those relationships and and the art of buying in, in general. Yeah. So uh, at the start, I would go to the US and visit these suppliers because they like to meet you in person and it does definitely help the relationship. And the same as in the UK. I lived in New York for nine months uh, when I had my wholesale business and I also lived in the UK. So I have like visited these suppliers regularly to maintain that relationship. But when I started, I didn't I didn't know enough about business and so we just had a particular margin that wasn't high enough and wasn't sustainable. So when we first started, our products were even cheaper and then now we've had to increase our prices. I mean, we're still heavily discounted but we've had to increase those prices to remain profitable and so we can expand. I want to know now, how did you get into this? Where did it all start? What were you like as a kid? Did you always have <laughs> entrepreneurial kind of tendencies? Take me take me back. I did actually. Like I was um, – I loved school and I studied. I was always wanted to get straight A's and I did up until about grade 10 and then I got extremely bored. I'm like, why am I learning algebra? Why am I learning chemistry? It just didn't make any sense to me. Um, And so I was really unsettled in those last two years and wagged a lot. (laughs) But I think it was just like the creativity in me wanted to come out and there just wasn't an outlet there. And I remember when I was... 16, I went to my dad and I was like, hey, dad, I went to Byron Bay and I'd seen like a juice shop there. And I said, dad, hey, I want to have a juice bar. This is well before Janine Ellis. And not to say that I would have <laughs> built a boost empire, but I, could have, yeah. um, I did see that trend emerging and I could see it come. But as a 16 year old, I just did not back myself at all. And, you know, my dad had said to me, go to Woolworths and Coles, ask for their Um, you know, slightly damaged fruit and vegetables and start selling out the front. But, you know, I didn't do that. And then I dibble dabbled in another um, business trying to put people's um, photography on um, CDs and called it Precious Memories. I didn't even know how to get customers. So my first two little like businesses when I was really young, um, yeah, just kind of fizzled. But yeah, as a kid, I was, I was, super conscientious, perfectionist, wanted straight A's and there was always an element of creativity to me and actually this is a story that ties in with what I do now. So I think as a, at a young age you always know what you're meant to be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, at, at our school part of the curriculum was building a spice rack so it's like made of wood and, you know, has all the elements where you put all your different spice racks in it but my brother who was two years older than me had uh, already made a spice rack 
So I thought my mum had so much makeup. So clearly she shaped me into the business that I was and she had so much makeup. So I went to my teacher and I said, hey, can I build a makeup rack instead of a spice rack? And so with all the the drills and the elements, and I think I was 12, I was in grade eight or something, um, created all the different holes so my mum could put her, you know, makeup and displays into. So even at that age, I, I must have known somewhere deep down that I was meant to be in this industry and yeah, that's it. It is, it is really interesting you say that and I actually totally agree. I think if I look back at my life, my earliest memories, I was always good with relationships, always good with people. If we went on holiday, you know, when I was a kid with the family, I would always just find a group of friends and, and that kind of trend carried on my entire life. Um, I think you do have to find an element of luck to then marry that thing into what you eventually do uh, you know, with your career. But when I found myself a cub, that's when everything kind of clicked. You know, I found sales, I found relationships. Mm. And this was all of a sudden an environment where, okay, well, this is something that's come naturally to me my whole life. And so, yeah, it is interesting when you go back, you know, to those early years and you think, you know, what what you were good at then and how it translates into, into, into what you are now. Um, what about when you finished school? What happened after that? And then, yeah, when I finished school, I actually moved to Hamilton Island to save, okay. to save money to, like, I love the water and being around water. And I suppose I grew up on the Gold Coast, so I just needed the water still in my life. Um, and I moved up there to save money to travel the world, but I went up there and it didn't turn out that way, but, um, it was a great experience. That was the first time I'd lived out of home. Um, and then what did I do? Then I, yeah, and then I came to Sydney. I came to Sydney about 10 years ago and that's when I really started to see, because on the Gold Coast there's, yes, of course, there's a business community now, but when I was growing up there, there wasn't that real business community and being around really successful people that can inspire you and um, make you play a bigger game and want to be a part of that. So, yeah, it's... um. It did take me a long time to start a business though. It was, I worked for other people for 10 years and I was bored in every single job. Like I, yeah, after Hamilton Island, I was working in a bank, um, being a business banking, the business banking person. I don't know why they gave me that responsibility of all that money, but um, yeah, I just was really bored and I would get those Sunday afternoon blues thinking, mm. I've got to go to work tomorrow. And I dread that. And um then I started working in a university and that's where I started my business and I negotiated with my manager, can I condense my five days work into four days so that I could do three days on my business and waited for that to pivot and then I let let go of my university job. Why do you think it took you 10 years to start your business? I know, it's cr- absolutely crazy. And, and I look around now, everybody at Carb and I see all the young members and they're just starting three business and I think that's amazing. I don't know whether it, it's not like I wasn't encouraged to do anything that I wanted to do as a child. Like my dad was very encouraging from a young age. You can do what you want. You can make your own decisions. I just think I didn't have the belief in myself that I could. And perhaps there wasn't the like tools and environments. Like now we've got everything, the podcasts and all of the support that a young entrepreneur needs to thrive. Um, that wasn't really around when I was in my young 20s. But I think I had a lot of uh, work to do on myself to really believe and achieve I could do anything. And I remember even for me to take that leap and separate from my job was I had to carry around a note in my uh, wallet saying, you know, if this big brand that didn't want me doing what I was doing, if the big brand doesn't want me in this space, I must be onto something. And I I carried that Mm. piece of paper around for, I think, six months until I took the leap. And yeah, it was just a matter of me getting that faith in myself. And, you know, that I, I do truly believe you can do anything now, anything you set your mind to and with hard work. And it's, it's, it's not even luck anymore. It's complete hard work and there's blood, sweat and tears that go into it. But I wouldn't have it any other way. And I think it's because I'm so creatively inspired in what I do. I get to create all the time how I want things to be. And that is fulfilling. And I've never had those Sunday afternoon blues in the whole 17 years I've been running a business. So I know I'm doing the right thing. <laughs> yeah, 100%. And I think there's a there's a really important lesson in there. You know, I think from an outside perspective, people can look at successful business owners and say, 
you know, they've got it, they've got it all figured out. It was easy. You know, they, they don't often see what it took to get to where they are, you know, the early doubts, the imposter syndrome, all the things that you have to go through in order to get successful. And I think for people who have gotten to a certain point of success to talk about those early struggles is very important for, for anybody listening. Um, you know, you keep bringing up this big kind of scenario that happened, this this big brand that didn't want you doing what you were doing. And, and, and I agree, you know, obviously if someone of that size is paying attention to you, you must be doing something right. Can you go into what happened? Yeah, yeah, I can go into one ha- what happened. So I started doing cosmetic displays for pharmacies and I took one of these big brands and I got all the bare uh, beauty award winners and bestsellers that were on the market and condensed them into a, dis- a display. And I said to the pharmacy, okay, that's $1,500 and you can make your um, 100% markup. And that was a great deal for the pharmacy because they got to sell a, this big brand name, all their beauty award winners and bestsellers that have won prizes for a really low commitment. Now, if you, before I came along, if you wanted to sell these brands, that's a $150,000 commitment. So they definitely didn't like what I was doing. Um, and yeah, I got this 28 page cease and desist and that was in the first year of my business and I was just devastated. I was absolutely devastated because I thought, oh, this is it. This is the business I'm meant to run. And, um, I was really upset to my, with my dad and just crying and, um, you know, dad wasn't wealthy, but I remember him giving me this wad of $5,000 of $50 notes and wrapped it in all this paper and wrote on the front. Oh, I don't want to get upset and cry, but it's like he wrote on the front like David and Goliath, right? Anyway, um, this this case went on and it was with their head office overseas. It wasn't just the representation of the brand in Australia that was wanting me out of the space. Legal letters to and fro their head office overseas. Uh, I was really lucky that I did have a good lawyer to represent me, but they said, if this goes to court, you need a QC and you can't afford a QC. So um, one of the partners had said, look, we want to be in this with you. You're not doing the wrong thing. Um, There's some areas that you might be like touching a bit of grey area here, but we know that these companies send out hundreds of letters a day just to squash little businesses like you. Um, and I wasn't stepping on their toes yet, but they just want to stomp people out of the market. And and I understand that they want to protect their brand and, and all of that. But there was an opportunity that I saw here in Australia and I wanted to go for it. And, you know, now we sell big names and other brands and brands that aren't, you know, we'll start to manufacture as well. But, um, yeah, so this this company just kept going and this went on for six months and I was lucky I was still at my job at a university because that was funding the legal letters, mm. which were very expensive. And then after six months, I got a call from my lawyer and they said, oh, they've dropped the case. They've got bigger fish to fry and they're just going to keep an eye on you. And I'm like, okay, well, that's amazing that the legal drama is off my plate and I don't have to fund any legal letters anymore. But what that says to someone in their first year of business that one of these top billion dollar companies in the world is going to keep an eye on me. That in itself, I think I would be much further along if that didn't happen because it still made me slightly scared and not be at my full potential to go, this is everything I'm capable of and this is what I want to show Australia that I can do in this market. And even though I know it was done, there was an element of me that was still scared. Like, oh, should I be doing this? Am I going to, you know, it causes trauma, those types of Mm. things. Um, Yeah. So yeah, once that was over, I did keep progressing, but I think that kept my wholesale business small because I was just like, okay, well, let's just make enough so that, um, you know, I can fulfill, you know, living and my financial needs and have the freedom to run my own business, but not to create significant wealth. Mm. And then it was only once I started the pop-up business that I was like, okay, this is 10 times better than my wholesale business and I can start to grow. That's a pretty significant adversity to go through Mm. in your first year of business. Looking back at that now, obviously you've you've been in business 17 years. What lessons do you think you took out of that experience? Yeah, I, I definitely, it always pays to do the research at the start. And I think it's also to take what some of these big conglomerates say and do, because I still experience it, take with what they say and do with a grain of salt. 
Like you have to be respectful, obviously make sure everything's still legal, but bigger players don't want smaller players in the market. And yeah, it's, it, you know, but then it's also the lessons that I've learned myself. And that is, I wish I had have backed myself all the way 17 years ago, but you know, it's a journey. Anyone in business is a journey and I'm always learning and growing. And I surround myself with people that are learning and growing and I try to do everything I can to learn all the time um, with different personal and professional development programs just so that I can make sure that I'm always trying to be the best person I can be. Mm -hmm. And so once you overcame that kind of significant experience, obviously now it must have felt a little bit like, all right, that, you know, the world's my oyster. You know, I've got this, this big play out the way. Now I can actually focus on my business. What happened next? Then I continued to wholesale for um, continued to wholesale for a few years after that, and then the global financial crisis happened. So our sales went. I think our sales probably we lost eighty percent of sales. Was people? I think that was in two thousand and nine. Yeah, people just stopped buying. Everybody freaked out, and they just stopped buying. And you know, because I was selling cosmetic displays into pharmacies and asking that those pharmacies to sell the products at full price, people stopped buying. And then, you know, once I'd kind of analysed and go, okay, everything stopped, what am I going to do? I'm not going to lose my business after everything that's happened. That's when I pivoted into discount cosmetic bins for the pharmacy. And that was because actually a, a, a pharmacy owner said, do you have anything discount? All my customers are asking for discounts throughout when all of that global financial crisis stuff was happening. And then I changed the model to selling discount bins that they can put out the front of their pharmacy and try to attract customers in or put it where the scripts are. And yeah, so we, we really changed the business from then and continued down a discount model. Isn't it crazy how, I mean, every time you hear these stories of, of, of adversity and, and, and scenarios where people have to shift and pivot, Nine times out of ten, if you if you keep on going, that ends up becoming a positive mm. shift in your business. I mean, I know we've experienced the exact same thing at Carb, obviously going through COVID. We're a face-to-face -face networking business and we couldn't we couldn't bring people face to face anymore. You've got to shift very quickly into a digital capacity, build new systems and and ways in which to connect our members. And now we have a whole digital product. We've got BOA, you know, that Laura's obviously been a big part of and, and Dan's doing his thing with that all came off the back of, of COVID. So I think, again, another good lesson in that when big, scary things happen, there are opportunities in that as well. Um, and those opportunities can make your business even bigger and better and stronger. Do you think that that experience that you went through during the GFC helped you when COVID hit as well? Yeah, definitely. I um, It made me realise that I can, no matter what happens, I can always change. And whenever I fly somewhere, even still now, I always look out the window and I go, doesn't matter how bad the economy gets, money is always changing hands. It will never stop. Like it will never stop happening. And so I always remind myself that it's always changing hands. There's always these transactions happening. How do I get in the middle of those transactions so that I'm getting more of that volume? Um, yeah. How have you found dealing with all this stuff on your own as a, as a, as a sole founder mm. and owner of your business? Like, I mean, that to me is a very foreign concept. Any business that I've been involved in, there's been, you know, leadership teams and, and a number of kind of owners and partners and, and whatever it might be. How, how have you navigated all of that on your own? Mm. It definitely has been difficult. Um, it has built a level of resilience that I feel like I can back and trust my own decisions. And, and even along the journey, I have been involved. I was involved in another business where I did have four other or three other partners. There was four of us. But the whole journey, the last 17 has been on my own. I don't have business partners. I don't have a life partner. And it can be difficult. But I really love what I do. And that fulfills me. And as we grow now, uh, we're building our senior leadership team and they're helping to share some of that burden and responsibilities. And 
it also really helps me when I have a coach or a mentor and all along the way I have had coaches or mentors for blocks of three or four years at a time and then I might take a break and then get another one to meet me at the level that I'm at. And when you're meeting with that person every week, they are like a business partner because the whole hour is a either event <laughs> or a growth strategy, exactly like what you would have if you did have a business partner, um, minus some of the, you know, in my experience when I did have um, other partners, when you put multiple creative people together, there can sometimes be clashes. Mm. And, you know, that's partly why I didn't franchise my business. Um, but, you know, you never know what happens in the future as I grow. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think it's an in incredibly impressive kind of endeavour to, to be in business for 17 years is a long time to be in business. And and to have done that, you know, predominantly on your own shoulders, um, I think that's that. that you I know, feel that's, worn down just <laughs> to say that. It's, it's something that deserves a, a, a huge amount of respect and, and credit. Um how many people do you have in your business? How many people do you have working for you currently? Yep. So in the retail stores, there's 35 across the six stores and we'll get a couple of more. Like literally staff are being training, trained right now this week to activate our seventh next week. And then there's five of us at head office. So our head office team is incredible. Um, I've got a great operations manager. I've got a great operation. I've got a great area manager for the stores and I've got a great coach that helps me as well. And what is what is your role in the business now? Are you in the trenches still? Are you operational? What, what What's your actual role? So before COVID, I had dug myself out of the trenches and I was, I had a general manager in place and I had the freedom to do what I wanted to do, travel when I wanted. Then when COVID happened, I was brought back into the business and then for probably the first year and a half or year after COVID. I don't even know how far past COVID we are right now, maybe two years almost. Two years, um, yeah. yeah. So maybe the first year I was back in the trenches, making sure that I could bring back up to the level, the business that I had before COVID. But now my role, like I'm the CEO and my role is specifically booking the real estate and making sure the company stays profitable. And booking the real estate is, is the main element of the business. It's if I get a good site, everything else takes care of itself. You can hand out baskets and as long as the staff are serving customers, it really does take care of itself. But the difference between a good site and a, a bad location and that foot traffic is huge. It plays a huge effect on the sales, sales numbers. So so obviously with, you know, around 35, 40 staff in the business, I know from a, a retail point of view, you know, even in a, in a pop-up sense as well, the logistics behind running that from a staffing point of view is, is very difficult. Firstly, I, I guess, you know, I'd love to hear a little bit more about like your thesis on, on leadership and how you, how you manage that, what kind of chain of command you've got. And I'd also be interested in hearing a little bit more about the systems that you've put in place so that your staff know how to run the business. Yeah. So I'm out of the day-to-day -day operations in the retail stores unless I go there and I will help with new setups to get that right layout happening uh, from a customer's perspective and to make sure it's set up properly for management if it's a first time site. But um, the area manager and my operations manager are the direct contact to the staff in between the stores. And as we grew, like obviously with staff comes their own complexity, like rewards and complexities. And so to manage that, we had to put a lot of systems in place of, you know, what are the rules of contacting head office staff? Because, we, you know, our staff base is is young and they're very mobile, active. They will just message you at 11 or 12 o'clock at night and asking a question about their shift. So mm. we very quickly had to go. I've always viewed the business like we have 10 or 20 stores. So when I see something happening, I think how is this going to work when we have 10 or 20 stores? And so we have systemized very early um, so everything is run through a, a work management program. I don't, I'm sure you've heard of monday.com, mm -hmm. but that's really good where we can have all of these visual boards that are really bright and colorful. Everything's automated. If we need the girls to do something in the store on a particular day, they, you know, get, get a button that they get to mark as complete. If the banking's not done, they fill out a form. 
there's plenty of forms out in the stores that the girls complete, which then sends that information back to head office. And then the support staff at head office can manage all of that. If it's something really important in the stores that I want to know is happening, you can program that button to say, send Michelle an an email. And then I know that thing's been done. So we, we never actually have to follow up with staff. It just removes a whole lot of emails, a whole lot of phone calls. That level of um, automation has really helped the business across, you know, the six stores feeding that information back to head office. And, you know, we've got a lot of staff that go to university. Their semesters change all the time, capturing what days they're available, how many hours are they alert to work if they're international students. All of that comes through a form and the key people just get a notification when that form comes in and then that goes into building the roster. And I'm a the previous business college that I was at would give out these mouse pads that said, if you have to do anything more than once, systemize it. And at the start, I had this expert come in with all of the little um, circles and squares up on the wall to map out those key processes to, to systemize it. And it started from there. And to me, systems is the freedom that I have. You know, I come to so many cub things. If I didn't have the level of systems, I wouldn't be able to remove myself from the business as much as I have. And I want to continue to remove myself from the business, still stay across the creative elements and the real estate. But, you know, I'm, I'm at the moment trying to systemize how the real estate is booked so that I can hire a real estate expert and bring them in. Because I do feel over the past 17 years, I have worked enough. Mm-hmm. I still love my business and I want to be actively involved, but, uh, you know, I want to be a proper CEO. <laughs> mm. No, hundred percent. I mean, I think in reality, that you know that 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 should be the goal for for any entrepreneur, any business owner, um, and it gives you a whole bunch of opportunities. It gives you an opportunity to to step out and maybe have a more flexible life. It gives you the opportunity to exit your business and sell. You know, if you're the face and you're too attached to it, you can't sell that business because without you, it's not a business. Mm. So I think you know these these systems and and building a business into a machine essentially is. it's got to be the best way to go. Um, You know, you're talking about your staff and and whatnot as well. I'm curious, obviously, I think in a, in a retail kind of environment, usually there's, there's quite high turnover. Is that something that you, you have to deal with? Yeah. Ours isn't too bad actually. And I think it's because if you want to enter working in the beauty market, you can't exactly go to some of the big players and say, Hey, I would like a job. You've got to kind of do your apprenticeship somewhere. And I think with us, because we're entry level, um, it's a good way for people that are interested in makeup to come and learn about retail cosmetics. We do have actually pretty good retention rates. And I think it's because if they're at university, we do make it easy for them to, you know, swap the days that they're able to be rostered on. And we provide that level of flexibility. Plus, it does suit the people that like um, variety because they get to work, you know, we've split Sydney up into eight sales regions. But if you live in, say, the west or the east or the north, that pop-up sale will move around that region. So you get to work at multiple different places. So, you know, there's some staff that would be, okay, I only want to go down to my local Westfield that's five minutes away and that's where I want to work and that suits that type of person. But there's other people that love that variety and I think that's what we attract and we also attract people that love makeup and want to work in that field and um, like obviously we follow the retail award but there's also incentives there as well. They get free makeup when they make their target. They also get – there's a $200 monthly prize for the – they get points for everything if they – you know, get an email if they, um, highest average sale, arrive to all their shifts on time, help out with the shift, they get points. So mm-hmm. they get a two, there's a $200 prize up to for grabs every month. So mm-hmm. I think we're a good employer. Yeah. So again, <laughs> it's back to systems, you know, you've created systems to make sure that your staff stay there and they stay happy and mm-hmm. they stay motivated. Um, hu- hugely important. Why have you decided to go down the route of pop-up stores as opposed to traditional kind of storefront retail? Yeah, well, I think it's because that first flash sale was so significant. Like if if I had have decided to go to that warehouse and say, hey, can I sublease that section of your car park? You know, this was undercover. I'm just another business that sits there. And then I've got, it takes a long time to get those customers to know that you're there and also to build up that relationship that they keep coming back. Whereas our model creates that urgency 
and they have to buy because our signage is all, you know, it started off four days only, now it's seven days or, you know, limited time only, which means we might stay two weeks, three weeks. Yeah, it creates that urgency. But, and we also actually started off doing empty shops. We weren't doing kiosks in centre courts and, and in the like high traffic mall parts. It started off with empty shops. And so we would approach the shopping centres and say, hey, I noticed that tenant's closing down. Can I bump in for until the new lease activates? And a shopping centre always wants lights on. So they would let us have that space for sometimes one week, two weeks or whatever the time frame may be. It's also really expensive to put those hoardings up as well. So they would contact us and say, hey, we've got this shop, the in-between gaps, two weeks, do you want it? And so we would take it. And then once we noticed we started to have more stores, it's not a scalable model because you're waiting for cus- like you're waiting for stores to vacate, which, you know, you can't really build a, a model on that. So then we, that's when we started introducing the kiosks and now like 99% of our bookings are kiosks. We will occasionally do it an empty shop if it's in the right position, but the kiosks in that traffic flow and the messaging that the branding messages that we have attracts the customer and works better for us. Do you see yourself ever going into a, a retail, a more kind of storefront retail environment? Yeah, well, it's really interesting. The first few years, like part of the app that I chose on my mobile phone, I can see what every store is doing at every second of the day. It also shows the comparison of those sales from the week before and it'll give a little green, yes, sales are up or red, sales are down and by what that percentage is, even with the average sale and the actual turnover and the customer count. So what I notice is the longer we stay, those sales dip off every week and it just gets to a point where, okay, we shouldn't be here. Obviously, if you stay in a position, you build up a customer base and they do come back. But our model was you get that honeymoon period everywhere you go. But as we now want to expand, it's difficult to have, you know, 10 or 20 stores moving around every week or every fortnight. So part of our expansion plans and in just building better displays and having better relationships with the shopping centres that we are starting to get, some opportunities are starting to come up for some longer term sites, which I would call, you know, unicorn sites where there's no limit to how much passing traffic's going through. There's different customers coming through every day. And and in in a normal shopping centre environment, the cycle of that customer visiting their store, visiting the shopping centre might be, they come, you know, one and a half times a week, wants to do their groceries, wants to do some shopping. The, it kind of tapers out. Um, but there's certain places in the city that get really high foot traffic. Everybody's going to meetings and things like that. So there's a constant flow of foot traffic and, you know, some of the outlet centres and things like that. So we are looking to do longer term, which is great because the business is very heavy logistically. And so as we start to add more stores to the to the suite that we have here in Sydney, it will alleviate some of the logistics and operational stuff. And and then for those staff members that want a consistent place to go, they can have one as well. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's quite interesting, you know, some of the stuff you said there. I'm interested to hear in, in how you, you you hop on these kind of trends and identify when things are hot and, and how they taper down. The reason I'm, I'm really interested is because, and I think we've had this conversation in the past, obviously, as, as we've kind of spoken about my backgrounds, in retail and we were in toys and there was there was one environment that we found ourselves in when those fidget spinners came (laughs) they became a global sensation craziest thing I've ever seen and my boss at the time he had these great relationships with the with the suppliers and there was a global shortage of stock nobody could get their hands on these fidget spinners and he managed to get his hands on I think it was a hundred thousand two hundred thousand of them and he said to me I want to set up a bunch of pop-up stores. You know, I'm going to identify where I think that the, the market is as hot as, as possible. I'm going to negotiate the leases and you're going to run the business. And I think we had 11 shops and he gave me, I think it was 20% of the business. And we wanted to ride that kind of trend out as long as it, as it went for. But what, what I found was kind of exactly along the lines of what you just said there before, it lasted, you know, I think the first week the sales were like astronomically high the next week they kind of dipped a little bit and so on and so forth. And I think it lasted like four weeks and we negotiated, we had the leases on the, on the stores for about six or seven weeks. And so the last mm-hmm. few weren't that great. 
why do you think that is and how do you identify when those environments are the right times to be there and when you need to leave? We look at our app, which tells us when the sales start to drop off. So we know that after, just from testing the market, we knew that after that two weeks, that was it. But even just an experience that happened at an outlet centre a couple of weeks ago, the signage that we have plays a huge role in the sales and it, it just blows me away. For example, we did a one-week sale at an outlet centre and the sales were a certain amount. We've then come back a few weeks later. So again, different customer. There's not really the same customers at this place. It's, it's all the customers are kind of new because they're visiting as an outlet place, a lot of internationals coming to shop. We stayed for two weeks. So our, so the first week, our signage was all about seven days only. We've got all these lollipop stand, lollipop signs on all the stands saying seven days only. We came back a few weeks later for a two-week period and obviously we couldn't say seven days only. So we had signage up that said limited time only. The sales, even just from the difference of that signage perspective, are off 30%. So, you know, part of, again, why we were moving around is sometimes the Monday, like all the sales have to bump out on a Sunday night and activate on a Monday morning, us moving, the rent is covered for the full week just from making the move. So when you might think, oh, it's easier to just stay or take a long-term booking, it's always worth moving. However, I'm competing for those spaces against all the other people doing the latest fidget spinner, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, or, you know, in winter I'm competing against Ugg boots. And that's part of why we we do have to go a bit longer to be able to be competitive to the shopping centre because that's a business to the shopping centre. They're looking at me coming and doing a one or two week activation or they're looking at someone that can come and do a three month activation or a seven week fidget spinner mm-hmm. activation. So it, it is, it's a fine balance of what works for the business, but also what works for the shopping centre as well. And I feel it's always, I've learned a lot from the signage and even the colours. I've had shopping centres say, uh, we don't want to see any yellow. Our, our first model is very red and yellow. And my previous business coach used to call me the JB Hi-Fi of cosmetics, but it worked. What li- what looks visually beautiful and what translates to sales can sometimes be two different things. Uh, so we're trying to find that fine balance of what ticks the big guys' boxes and, you know, the big major shopping centres, but also works for the customers. Because I've been told everything, everywhere where you have yellow, please change to white. And again, my sales drop off 30%. Mm. So it's, it's, it's always testing it and looking at the numbers and seeing like what works, what doesn't work and trying to find that balance in the middle. Yeah, it's a really interesting part of, of retail and I think discount retail in particular, the things you're talking about and, and, and it just, it takes me back a little <laughs> bit because we used to go into, into JB Hi-Fi, we used to go into Chemist Warehouse, all those types of stores and we used to study their signage, you know, even though those little labels, from those little labels to the big sto- the signs that are hanging from the roof, study them and try and copy them um, because that's what, that, that is what's drawing the sales and people wonder why it's so loud in those stores. There's a reason for it. You know, it's, it's a, it's a well thought out kind of system. Um, but but you know what else I was going to say yeah, about yeah, uh, kind of in line with the signage and part of our testing is we had these new point of sale counters built and like, for, like when you were saying you go into other stores and analyze what they're doing, you know, I can walk into any business and I'll get an idea of something. It mm-hmm. could be a completely different business and go, oh, that's something really good that I can integrate. And so obviously when you're at the supermarket, they've got all the impulse buys at the at the counter. We had these new point of sale counters made and we created just the, the, the compartment to have four different impulse buys. Those impulse buys pay for the manufacturing of those counters mm-hmm. all day long. And my staff aren't even like eventually the upsells will be in there and they'll get points for this is the upsell of the week. But it's just incredible. Like you put something in a customer's like line of sight and for the right price and it's bright and colourful, they want to buy it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's detailed stuff. It's re- retail is detail. Mm, retail is detail. I bet you that's going to be my little tag. <laughs> <laughs> What's next? Where do you see the future of your business? So for the future, I want to keep growing. Um, our current growth plans are we're adding a new outlet every two months and that's for the first year. And then the second year, we're adding 10 for, 10 for that year, third year, 10 for that year. And then that would have us all around Australia. 
I want to be pulled back and, you know, be the CEO and not involved in the day-to-day operations and, you know, trying to remove myself as much as possible and get involved in other things that I'm interested in and or, or at least have the have the freedom and the time to do that. I want to go back to traveling more. I, I do want to work less, but I also want to make sure that there's um, the right eye on my business to make sure it's all ticking along. And I feel like, you know, even how we're moving into these permanent um, sites now, something will come to you, which I feel like starts to shape the direction of what, where you want to take it. And, you know, I even just got a call yesterday about someone in Queensland from one of the groups that I'm already dealing with. They, they've got sites up there for me to take. So I feel like things start to happen and I just go, okay, well, is this in line with my three-year plan that I've created? And yeah, it is. So yeah, I might take up that opportunity sooner than it was on, you know, the planning board. But when the opportunity comes, I just decide, is, is that what I want in line with the business? So, yeah. I want to finish off on on something that you put in your your notes, which was, I never give up. And I think hearing your story, <laughs> that the, there's no there's no doubt that you know you've you've got that kind of find a way attitude and perspective. It's no matter what comes your way, you're you're getting through it, and you're you're going to continue growing. Why do you think that is? Where do you think that comes from? I think it's I think it's from my parents actually. Like my dad was quite um, experimental and entrepreneurial, and he experimented a lot. And you know, my mum is really encouraging as well. And I think, yeah, I think just the the creativity will will always be there for me. Yeah, something that's been instilled from 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 the early days. I mm. think that's that's really obvious. Um, Michelle, I think that's a that's a great place for us to finish off. Um, I've really enjoyed the conversation. I think it's 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 hugely obvious that not only do you have the um, the persistence, the perseverance, the entrepreneurial spirit, but you also know your business back to front. You know, and I think people need both if they're going to be successful. Um, I suppose are there any kind of closing thoughts that you'd like to to finish off on? Just like thanks for having me, and it's actually really nice to reflect. Sometimes I think things are going so fast and we're expanding and these opportunities come up and, you know, it's nice to reflect and think, well, yeah, I have created something really good and I have put a lot of work in because there has been blood, sweat and tears into this business. And I've also sacrificed a lot. Like I've made some choices that some other people may not have made, but that was what was important to me. And yeah, it's, it's nice to, it's nice to recall the journey and appreciate what I have built and look forward to the future. Well, I love having you as a member of Cub and I look forward to us being a part of your journey going forward. And yeah, I've re- really enjoyed the conversation. If you want to hear a bit more about Michelle, head to cub.club slash podcast. Um, you can see Michelle's favorite books, her favorite quotes, her favorite lessons in business um, and find her on LinkedIn as well. Uh, Michelle, thank you so much. Really enjoyed it and see you soon. Thank you, Calvin.